Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, the science of athletic excellence. Welcome everyone to the Team Evil GSP question and answer video for April 2018. As soon as someone logs on, if you could give me the quick heads up and let me know that audio and video are working as they should be. Um, As I've mentioned more than a few times, I know a lot about a lot, but very little about technology. And Leon Medic is telling me that everything works okay. Excellent. And I'm set to speak to you. I think it is tomorrow already, Mr. Medic. So that in itself is pretty exciting. All right. With that work, with that the case, everything's working. We are about to move forward. Uh, new addition to my question and answer videos. My legal counsel consistently reminds me that I should consistently remind all of you that I am not a doctor. Every Anything and everything I say is purely from an information point of view. Should you choose to do any of the things I suggest, do so at your own peril. And that's about as legally as I'm going to ever get. So there you go. I said that. And as always, I uh, start these videos as the viewership winds up. I start these videos with some prepackaged questions. And I have uh, a couple of actually really good ones. Um, just in order that they came in, uh, Logan Bell asked me a uh, long, complicated question. I will super paraphrase, but Logan can confirm that this was the question. And that is, I have mentioned regularly that there's kind of a family tree of drugs, testosterone to 19 nord to DHT, and then basically structurally testosterone relatives, making a three-pronged family tree. And his question is, how would you know or learn to understand the commonalities and general behaviors of the three prongs of the family tree, and how would you use them to your best advantage? Um, The short answer is study, study, study. There's a lot of chemistry there. You really, if you're going to take your life into your own hands, your performance into your own hands, all those sorts of things, you probably should take the time to learn and understand that. That said, I will put you on a very simple path, uh, a very boiled down path toward a very complicated answer. And that is, very roughly speaking, testosterone is the general hormone. It's the broad spectrum thing that turns children into adults. So anything in that testosterone family Testosterone of any varieties, ester doesn't matter, just affects the speed of release. Uh, Dianabol, boldenone, which, by the way, are exactly the same hormone, but uh, testosterone, dianabol, boldenone, trinabol, there's a number of others, but those are pretty much the ones you would find on a regular basis. Those are very closely related to and non-derivated from testosterone, meaning they are also very broad spectrum. You're going to get general effects in every possible category. They are the most like testosterone, derivated either for oral activity or a slightly higher anabolic index, but roughly speaking, very similar and very broad spectrum. As you move over, say, to the 19 nor family, you immediately lose the ability to convert to estrogen, so that has implications across the, the, the entire family. Although, that doesn't mean you won't necessarily have estrogenic issues upon using them because they do have progesterone impact, and progesterone has downstream impacts on estrogen. So just because, say, nandrolone doesn't have the ability to convert to estrogen doesn't mean you couldn't get an estrogen problem, estrogen buildup problem using it over time. You would just get it through a secondary pathway. But nonetheless, no estrogen, so proximally to dosing, no estrogen, so you have that. And secondly, just as a general theme, 19 nor derivatives tend to bring lots of volume. Think about people that use nandrolone, uh, trenbolone. They're always very big, very full, very round. Um, it's a very encompassing filling drugs, the family of drugs. Moving all the way over to the other side, to the uh, the, uh, DHT derivatives, DHT is highly, highly anabolic, more anabolic than testosterone, by by orders of magnitude, actually. 
Um, however, it's also very much more masculinizing, and that's the theme you want to keep through that entire family. Anavar, Winstrol, Primabal, and Masteron, okay, very, very anabolic. Milligram to milligram, very, very anabolic, but do not bring the 19 North side of fullness. So you're never going to be nearly as full or as round or as hydrated is a fair word there. Osmotic is really the word. But and again, in a general sense, that family is going to bring you lots of anabolism, meaning construction of actual protein, but a minimum of the other stuff. And then secondarily, that family also has the strongest influence on neurology. It's going to have the highest increase in neuromuscular coordination, neuromuscular facilitation, uh, neuroconductivity, uh, arousal, etc. Uh, there's two outliers to mention in this, and one is uh, um, anadrol, oxymetalone, is a DHT derivative, but yet behaves much more like the 19 Nor family, just a quirk outlier of the chemistry. And secondarily, um, I mentioned the you know, neurological impacts. Trembone over on the 19 North side also has very, very strong and, and might I mention very poorly understood uh, neurological impacts. But in a general sense, there's the rough breakdown of the family tree. Um, I would strongly suggest if this is what you're going to do with your life and you're going to risk your life doing this, that you take a little time and study deeper than that. Uh, I would start with Bill Llewellyn's uh, tome, Anabolics. It covers the fundamentals of how this chemistry works, and then you can, of course, move forward from there. But um, also, tune in and listen to this every you know every week, every uh, first of every month. It's like you know smatterings, bits and pieces cover it. But that's a general outline of how it would work. Uh, at least one more of the prepackaged questions. Um, actually, yeah, I do very much want to answer this one. Um, Brandon Thomas asked me, again, long, complicated question, basically coming down to um, growth hormone and what I think of brands and efficacies. Um, he mentions, you know, a number of brands specifically. I won't go into that, but as a theme, he's asking me, is there a big difference between generic and name brand? If there is, how big is it? That sort of thing. Um, my attitude on that is very much different than most of your guru people, which, by the way, I don't consider myself. Um, most people will tell you, oh, stay away from the Chinese junk. It's garbage. You know, only buy, you know, Gintrope or Humatrope or what, what the fuck ever. Um, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but I find pretty consistently, because I have information that maybe a lot of you don't, I find that when people have that kind of hard stance that only this brand is the good kind, um, they have a vested interest. They have something to do with that brand or how it's getting to you. Um, I won't, like I said, I won't mention any names, but usually when you have somebody that waves a specific brand or a specific thing, uh, you, you find somewhere along the line they, they have some sort of vested interest. And I have vested interests here and there and around the way, but in world of growth hormone, I have none. So I think my attitude is pretty honest. And that is making growth hormone, actually the manufacture of it, is a very specific mildly complicated process. However, it's one of those things where you either can do it or you can't. I, this idea of, oh, it's poorly made, it's crappy, it's junk, that's kind of not how it works. It's kind of an all or nothing thing. Um, you're either making growth hormone or you're fucking not. So there probably are some honest to goodness garbage products out there. They're just simply not what they're supposed to be. Uh, but my experience is I've not found any of them. Most of what comes across the market is actually growth hormone. It is actually the 191 amino acid polypeptide known as somatropic hormone. The catch is, and this applies with all brands of generic drugs largely, but especially with peptides, peptides are particularly sensitive to time temperature abuses. They are particularly fragile products once manufactured. And my belief is most of the difference in how good or bad a product works for you is largely a function of how well or bad the product was treated before getting to you. It's a matter of a race against time and exposure to temperature, light, and potentially uh, impact, shock, because it's a large crystal that could actually shatter. So it's really the product itself must be treated with a high level of care and respect between manufacturer and getting to you. So the fresher the product is, the more professionally it was 
stored, transported, etc. Now, I will be fair and say that probably has a lot to do with finance, the cost. You're, you're not going to get exquisite care and treatment and expedited shipping and all of that for no money. Largely, all of that stuff costs money. So there is probably some correlation between cost of product and quality in terms of your usability, but it's not what you think. It's not that, you know, Group X is making shitty 80% growth hormone and Group Y is making 100% growth hormone. It's kind of not how it works. It, it's really a thing where you, you're either making it or you're not, um, and you kind of know that from the go. So really, I think what you're paying for is care and quality in the handling of. So that is really something to think about. You know, I've been to third world countries, and you, you, you know, walk in a pharmacy and, you know, Ecuador, you know, Mexico City or something, and it's fucking 40 degrees Fahrenheit or centigrade, and there's just boxes of growth on sitting, you know, on a shelf. I don't care what brand that is. That's probably not going to work that well. It's probably not the treatment that's going to give you the best bang for your buck or peso in this case. So I would start thinking less about brand and start thinking about the caliber and quality of the people getting it to you and that sort of thing. I really think that's probably more a function of the issue. And uh, also in this, he mentions a writer about like the IGF-1 tests. The problem there can be anywhere between honesty and practicality. For instance, the same person, same everything, same growth hormone. You take it, wait the requisite amount of minutes or hours, take the IGF-1 test and get a re result. Do the exact same thing in a different insulinogenic environment, eating more or less carbohydrates, you'll get a different result. So it's a situation where, yes, it measures that thing, but not as scientifically as you might think. So many external conditions can affect. You can get amazingly effective growth hormone, but design a test in such a way that it barely elevates IGF-1 at all. And conversely, you can get marginal growth hormone, but set everything in the best possible light and get a pretty significant IGF-1 response. So I would put a lot less value in someone else's numbers. You yourself might be able to do those numbers, get some valid information that you can use moving forward. But to take, you know, so-and-so selling me growth hormone and they showed an X, Y, or Z elevation in IGF-1, I would, I would shelve that as real valuable marketing information. I, I don't trust that, again, because you can you can use no growth hormone and get a pretty significant proximal elevation at IGF-1 just based on training, body temperature, sugar manipulations. So I, I wouldn't put a huge value in that. <coughs> uh, let's see. I have a couple of other prepackaged questions, but let's see what the ticker has brought <coughs> because I've actually been ignoring that while I've been rambling on. Let's see, what would you recommend to battle the sides of Anadrol, AI, or CERM? Probably two answers to my question, to that question. I'm sorry, just stumbled with the language. Um, three answers, really. My first answer is always the same. I would try and try titrate the dosing in such a way that you just simply don't have side effects. That's the perfect world here. This idea of what drug do I need to take to fix the drug I want to take, that's a really shit attitude. I understand that that comes up proximal to events because you simply have to do what you have to do. But in general, off season, all the time, this idea that I need to take three drugs just so that I can take my precious this drug, that's a really bad attitude. First answer would be try and adjust the dosing or dose pattern or something to such a way that you really don't need to combat anything. Second, Anadrol typically does not have direct estrogenic effects. So an aromatase enzyme inhibitor is probably not where you need to go with that. Again, it's a DHT derivative. It has almost no ability to directly convert into estrogen, so I would avoid that. I would probably really look more at the prolactin pathway. That's probably where the instigation for later estrogenic issues are coming from. So I would probably actually not start with either of them, I would probably actually start with a low-dose, infrequent uh, dosing of Dostanex. Uh, you, you guys probably know it's Cavergoli 
originally the brand name for that was Dostin X. Stuck in my head. Uh, that's probably where I would begin uh, treating a 19 nor derivative, but that is how I would go in that order of events. First, try and adjust the dose so you don't need anything. Then, you know, secondly, move on to, to actual treatments. Uh, let's see, there was a... What is your opinion on testosterone enanthate as hormone replacement? Do you need... Oh, oh, Trestolone. I'm sorry, I read it as testosterone. Um, that is much too bold of a hormone to use as a TRT hormone replacement. Um, the, the absolute best, most appropriate hormone replacement is testosterone because that is the hormone you are replacing. Whether it's in a sports performance paradigm or in just a general health or even geriatric paradigm, there's nothing better than the thing you're trying to, you know, what's the best replacement for money? It's fucking money. Um, you know, if you don't have money, then you can go on to, you know, goodwill and all sorts of other things, and you'll get along, sure. But at the end of the day, the best solution is to replace the thing you're missing with the thing that is missing. Getting clever and trying to go sideways, uh, I don't like. With maybe one exception, um, if you're not particularly prone to the hemogenic effects of boldenone, I might under some scenarios, suggest that you go with boldenone as a replacement for your testosterone in your testosterone replacement therapy because boldenone, first of all, is a very close relative to testosterone. And the major difference is that it's simply a bit more anabolic. So if you replaced your 200 milligrams of TRT with 200 milligrams of boldenone, yes, you might have a slightly higher issue down the road with red blood cell components. Uh, you know, hemoglobin, hematocrit, etc. But you would probably, not probably, you would get measurably more anabolism per milligram per unit time. So other than that, and again, I, I make the distinctions because they're so very close together in terms of general structure, they're not particularly different. Um, other than that, that's about the only option I would consider for replacing one hormone with another in terms of a TRT scenario. T is always the key in the TRT. Uh, I really do believe that. What are my thoughts on Stan Efferding's vertical diet? Um, short answer is I only vaguely know what it is, but what I've heard sounds, and, and I'm super not bashing Stan here, but sounds suspiciously like what I've been saying for 25 years. Um, you know, fix your protein and fat against your body weight, consume the rest in easy to handle, easy to cook, easy to consume, carbohydrates. I believe he chooses white rice. I like white rice, pasta, and a couple of other things. Uh, I put a lot less weight on the perils of gastric distress. Although, to be fair, I can eat a fucking bowl of glass and it doesn't bother me, you know, gastrically. So maybe, uh, you know, my own personal experiences influence my opinions. But in general, my thoughts on what little I know about Stan Efferding. And by the way, I was actually chatting with the dude at the Arnold Classic, and we talked about everything but his diet, uh, simply because, you know, it's nice to not talk shop every minute of your fucking life. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think that in general, he, like everyone else that actually knows anything about actual physiology, biology, and chemistry, the body runs on fucking glucose. Getting a good source of glucose is kind of the whole gig. Um, so he chose to use the vertical component of his calorie carbohydrate thing as white rice. Yeah, white rice is great. It's you know hypoallergenic. It's easy to cook, easy to store. It's cheap. It's, yeah, it's a fucking great idea. Um, I think there's a lot more to his general paradigm. You know, he's big on blood tests and filling in some micronutrients, and as well you should be. I'm just saying that. Um, I'm like super dumbing it down. I'm not just trying to say he just tells you to eat a bunch of rice and get on with it. Uh, there's more to it than that. But in the general structure, yeah, I, I think he's exactly right. He's a smart guy. As soon as he opens his mouth, you can hear that he, you know, he's not an imbecile. And I would pay attention to him. And um, also, some very, very good athletes have gotten even better dealing with him. That's usually a tip off that something in the paradigm, you know, is is working really well. And and I would say that that. You know, that's what I would say about that. Yeah, it's a great idea. Um, again, I actually hope to take some time in the near future and actually read up and actually know what he is talking about. But my general uh, thought is he, he's a smart guy. He knows what he's doing, and I would feel you're going wrong paying attention to him. Leon Medic, do I plan on doing a post about books that people should be reading? Uh, yes, I do. And no, I haven't. Yes, I'm a schmuck. I do apologize. I did say I would do that, and I will get around to doing it. I'm just – I'm buried. Um 
for those of you that don't know, uh, it's uh, Sunday, a little afternoon, Eastern Standard Time. Tuesday morning, crack it on, I leave for Australia, uh, which I'm super excited about. I'm super wound up about. It's a big turning point in my life and career, and it's wonderful, but it's also got me stressed beyond the edge of my ability. So uh, the fact that I'm failing at things is not surprising. Uh, I'm a fucking mess. So if it were for my wife, I'd, I'd be like just out wandering around in a field or something. So, uh, let's see. Does injection site elicit more growth? Uh, site in, you know, actual local growth in relation to the injection site is the te tem tenor of the question. Um, the answer is, and there's been real, real studies done on this, folks. A lot of this shit, you know, people want to throw out, you know, bro science and goofy. The, the, the reality is if you actually look at, you know, nursing manuals and, and medical journals and et cetera, et cetera, some of this stuff has actually been worked out. It's actually true. And the reality is site injection, period does cause a certain amount of local site growth. However, it is not what most scientists and goofy whatever, it, it has nothing to do with, you know, all the, you know, the receptors there get more exposure. It's not, it, no. The reality is muscle growth at large initially is an inflammatory response. And injection is a highly inflammatory event. The sheer act of creating local inflammation in a given muscle will cause a small but measurable on a consistent level amount of anabolism local to that injection. <coughs> so for instance, if you consistently injected your anything into your bicep, the sheer fact that you are consistently creating an inflammatory area within the same muscle, you are in fact driving mild anabolic processes and you will, over time, accrue slightly more tissue than the area you're not doing that. Now, there's always a downside to everything, so it's not like, oh, inflammation's great, everybody needs a whole bunch. Um, you know, that, that doesn't work. However, the reality is muscle growth is largely an inflammatory process. Therefore, inflammation definitely plays a role in it, and it's hard to argue that local injections do not cause some measure of inflammation. So the answer is yes, but it's not actually in response to the anabolic or any action of the specific drug. You could be fucking injecting toilet water um, and still get some of that local inflammation and response. Uh, I don't recommend you do that, but although some underground drugs are so bad, they might as well be but that's a different uh, different issue. Let's see, what else we have here? Is there any, uh, Tony is asking me, is there any point to eating fewer carbs and more fats during a maintenance phase for the purpose of resensitizing insulin? And there's some numbers to follow. I'm not going to read the numbers. Um, no, but yes. Okay, this idea that, first of all, carbohydrates are always going to be predicated on body weight and activity. That's it. So the first thing you started there with maintenance phase. So if it's a maintenance phase and your goal is to not accrue additional body weight and probably not train at your absolute top to your abilities, then obviously your carbohydrate value is going to go down. So the answer to that is yes, you're, you're benchmarking your carbohydrate consumption based on body weight, expected changes in body weight and activity. So that's going to determine what's going on. As far as adding more carbs, or rather adding more fats, no, that's just adding calories. That's fucking stupid. Um, the whole idea here is you benchmark your fats against your body weight, and that is the amount doesn't have much to do with much. So the idea that, you know, eating this idea that fucking, I don't know, it's some dumb shit that came out of the, the 90s that fucking, you know, peanut butter and dumb ass high-fat foods have some magical benefit on something, no. Um, yes, fats are very valuable to your overall carbohydrate metabolism, your overall anabolic metabolism. They have a lot of positive effects. The catch is it's a fucking tiny, tiny amount. It is. It's real, and it's true, and they're right, but they're wrong by orders of magnitude. Um, this idea that, you know, if you need, you know, 40 grams of fat to stay alive, then, you know, you'll be super fucking alive if you get 80 grams, and you'll be fucking amazing if you get 120. It's fucking dumb. No, you need how much you need, and you really need that, and any less is going to be technically and officially a fucking deficiency. But more is not beneficial. Chances are, if you're eating like a normal, really 
good bodybuilder, you're still getting more fucking fat than you need. This idea that, you know, somehow getting more is going to elicit some special change. No. So would you lower your carbs during a maintenance phase? Yes, because you're lowering your activity and lowering your expectations. Of course you would. Does that mean that you should then raise your fats? Of fucking course not. If anything, you probably want to lower them because you're driving your metabolism at a slower rate, not a higher one. But it's my pet subject, so I don't want to sound like a complete crazy person. But the answer to your question is you adjust your carbohydrates according to your activity and expectations. And fats, you roughly speaking, leave alone. Coming into a bodybuilding event, you would bring them down simply because it's a you, health becomes less of an issue and sheer calorie burden becomes a bigger issue. But other than that, that's about it. Bravin, cool name. That's funny. Interesting name. I've actually never heard that. Uh, what are my thoughts on short cycles? They are stupid. I would never recommend you do that. With some really, really rare exceptions, read uh, old stuff by the late, great uh, Paul Borison. He can give you some ideas on short cycles, but they're very specific. Uh, in general, biology is a slow-moving process. You are not going to elicit any meaningful changes in four to six weeks. Most of the time, the fucking drugs you're taking require four to six weeks to actually begin to work properly. Uh, the idea that you're going to accrue anything short of water and carbohydrate retention in four to six weeks is fucking dumb. Uh, that, that I'm never going to change my view on that. Well, uh, that's a fucking shit thing to say. Maybe some revelatory thing will come down the pipe that will make me change my attitude, but everything I know about biology, physiology, and every piece of my experience leads me to believe that that's just fucking silly. I uh, would never do it. David Herrera, what uh, benefits and or drawbacks to using tadalafil year-round? Um, crazy spastic erections? about it? Um People are prescribed that drug essentially year-round. Um, it, you know, there's no real downside. Um, I suspect the benefits to sports performance would wane quickly, and then you would just be getting the clinical effects, which would be spastic erections. Um, I suspect, and I don't know because, th again, this has not been studied. I suspect that sports performance benefits are reasonably transient, and for that reason, I suggest using it in relatively short windows for the nitric oxide, you know, circulatory impact, that sort of thing. But in general, um, knowing how those drugs work and the enzyme systems responsible for how they work, I suspect strongly that the, the sports performance benefit is transient. The actual effect, you'd probably take it for a lifetime. I mean, we have people at this point that have been taking those sorts of drugs, that class of drugs, for decades now with seemingly no problem, and I suspect that's the case. Uh, so, uh, Derek Dixon, happy Easter. Well, thank you, I guess. I don't even know what the fuck Easter really is. I'm completely unknowing of religious shit, but but thank you. It seems like a, seems like a nice sentiment. Uh... What is my preferred method of brewing coffee? Interestingly, this right here is my latest uh, method, which is uh, AeroPress. Uh, makes a really good cup of coffee, but a little bit of a pain in the ass, and it's not that much better. Uh, Dollars of Donuts, my Chemex is my favorite method. I, I just fucking love my Chemex. One, because it makes great coffee, and two, because it stirs a little thing in my mind. It makes me think of college chemistry because it's glassware and it's Pyrex. And it's ex so I, I very much do uh, uh, like my Chemex for goofy, goofy reasons. Let's see. Let's see. In terms of minimum fat needs, can under eating fats uh, for say a year cause a lifetime suppression of testosterone? Um, no, it's very possible that it could cause a proximal suppression of testosterone. Again, the body is very, very dynamic. To Again, you could use you know, anabolic steroids and get actual hormone feedback loops of suppression that doesn't last for a lifetime. So um, I would be very dubious of it being a lifetime concern. You know, 20, 30 grams a day for a long period of time probably will cause a short-term reduction in, you know, a proximal reduction in uh, sex hormones. Interestingly, there's some studies that show that may not actually affect overall performance or uh, body mass, and the jury's out on why that is, but there are some studies that suggest that, that dietarily induced reductions in androgens seem to have less impact on overall body mass. Uh, I can think of two studies that sh have shown that. 
no one really understands why that would be. There's people looking into that right now. Um, but no, almost always dietary changes are reflect transient changes in physiology and vice versa. Um, 20 to 30 grams of fat per day is really fucking little. I mean, it, it's hard to do. Um, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing. I'm not saying you didn't do that. You couldn't do that. Well, whatever. You really can. I'm saying that from a practical point of view, living in the Western world, I mean, there's fucking 30, 40 grams of fat in the fucking air. It's hard to get that little. So in truth, yes, but in practice, I just don't dwell on that because it's so hard to do. I mean, if you get three, two, 300 grams of protein, as most bodybuilders do, it's damn hard you know, to not get 30, 40 grams of fat along with it. Uh, it's, just, it's just fucking hard. Uh, so... Yes, but not really from a practical point of view. Let's see. Ridge Reed is asking me something. I'm curious what you would recommend for someone with training nutrition in check, 240 pounds, 15% body fat, on starting GH insulin to put on muscle. Uh, is there a better way of taking insulin? Yes, absolutely. Um, insulin can be very, very effective, and it can be very, very horrible. Um, now is probably not the time to go into that in a super depth but short answer is both insulin and growth hormone work very well independently. They work even better together. You know, you hear people do the one plus one is three. I think that's actually crap. I think it's more like one plus one equals five. Uh, I do believe the synergy is that big. A very general attitude is a five to one ratio. Say you're going to take one IU of GH. I think that approximately five IUs of our insulin are insulin. Fast-acting insulin is way too problematic, uh, way too rapid of fluctuations for a non-diabetic. Uh, it's a life-saving compound for diabetics, but for athletes, again, biologist, big picture, low, slow. I think these things take time to play out. I don't think, I know. If you look at the life cycle of growth hormone within the body, the conversion, you know, the release of catecholamines, the elevation of blood sugar, the, 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 the conversion at the liver in the presence of estrogen to IGF-1, from the time you take it to the time you actually get the growth components, you're talking about you know 90 to 120 minutes uh, taking fast-acting insulin. It's going to shoot up, shoot down, you're done. The insulin's not there when the IGF-1 is not good. So longer, slower. Our insulin, roughly speaking, a 5 to 1 ratio. Um, so, you know, two IUs of growth hormone in the morning is probably going to require, eh, not require, but ideally synergize with about 10 IUs of our, our insulin. And then, of course, you would need to adjust your calorie carbohydrate load to keep that within safe ranges. Um, there's a lot more to it than that, but I'm being super general. But that's about what I would say. Uh, I do not like fast-acting insulin for anything other than perhaps uh, pre-intra-workout windows and or carb loading before some sort of an event, but elsewise, I do not think it's a really good, uh, you know, off-season, you know, mass gaining protocol. Samir is asking me, do I have any clients who use ADHD medication, <coughs> and does it affect their ability to recover? Uh, news for you, buddy, almost every flavor of athlete uses ADHD medicine uh, as a stimulant, um, everything ranging from, you know, the, the Ritalin, all the way up to Modafinil. It's super used and abused. And as far as its effect on recovery, it probably does have an effect on recovery, but it's probably nominal. Most people's inability to progress is not really a recovery-driven problem. It's usually motivation slash behavioral act deficiency. And, you know, having fucking stimulatory effects tends to get people off their ass and get shit done. So... Uh, I would say that it probably does on some deep level, but in practical terms, no. Bravin is asking me about somatostatin inhibitors. Uh, how long can they be safely run for? I am going to tell you the honest truth. Uh, I'm only peripherally knowledgeable on the subject. Uh, it's just not something I dug into. Uh, I don't have enough information on the tip of my tongue to really rattle anything off of value. It's something I've been looking into and will, and when I get a solid handle on it to the point where I feel comfortable opening my mouth, I'll, uh, I'll let you know. But at the moment, um, I, I, just, I just don't really uh, have any valuable information. In general, and this is not an answer to your question, but it's it's kind of explains my attitude on it. 
Uh, in general, I really think that the fundamental shit we have, testosterone, anabolic steroids, growth hormone, insulin, IGF-1, clenbuterol, the very basic stuff, as good as it is, as good as it works, as effective as it is, hasn't even sufficiently been exploited. So I spend a lot less time focusing on the new exciting peripheral stuff. Although it's new and exciting and it does get my attention, I'm still spending most of my time, effort, and intellect on the fundamental shit because I really believe there's a much bigger upside still in the fundamental shit that is presently being exploited. So that just to explain my kind of attitude on that is I, I really would, you know, if I have a free hour, I would rather spend it, you know, delving into carbohydrate, you know, insulin, growth hormone metabolism, which is old hat, it's a boring and whatever, but I still think there's so much upside there that I would rather spend my time fooling with that than dealing with SARMs or, you know, somatostatin inhibitors or et cetera, simply because they may, they may not work. It may be great. It may not be, but, Growth hormone fucking works, and tweaking its effects can work really well. So just, just to give you some idea, that's where my thinking is. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Ben is asking me. Ben must not listen to my stuff very much, Ben. Uh, asking me where I stand on aromatase enzyme inhibitors. Would I rather diminish estrogen side effects via modulation or the application of, of an actual uh, aromatase enzyme inhibitor? Um just real, real quick, for the record, I consistently suggest the lowest possible testosterone and or aromatizable drug component possible. Less drugs that have the potential to turn to estrogen, less potential for estrogen, it's not a fucking problem. You don't have to take an extra drug. Um, TRT values of testosterone, dianabol, boldenone, and fucking move on. Then apply really good, effective anabolics, you nandrolone and Nastrani, Nanthate, Primobolin, et cetera, and get your growth from drugs that were fucking designed for growth. Get your hormone cascade from the drug that was designed for hormone cascade. Testosterone is the original one, so it fucking works really good. It'll convert to estrogen at a normal rate. It'll convert to DHT at a normal rate. And, you you know, your attitudes and emotions will be fine, and your pecker will get hard, and you can get your muscle from fucking Primobolin. Um, that's the way I've always approached that. And again, unless some big revelation comes down that I've been wrong, and you know, it happens every once in a while, but in this case, I really don't buy it. Um, that's how I would handle it. Shimmy Hacker, how do you and Mike differ in every way? He's fucking clown. No, he's a great guy. Um, on programming hypertrophy training for a physique athlete. Um, funny you ask that, because we actually do differ quite a lot. Um, he is a PhD. I am not. He has a very thriving business dealing with tra you know, training program. I do not. So I am his coach uh, in certain aspects. And really what I do is he forwards me what he intends to do, and I forward him what I think is best going to synergize with that. Uh, I do not really speak into his training um, for a lot of reasons, including the fact that he almost certainly knows what he's doing enough to handle that doesn't need my input. And secondly, um, that's simply the arrangement we have is, you know, I'm augmenting what he's doing to the best of my abilities to make his thing work better. Were I designing training for him, it would look different than what he's doing. Uh, the biggest difference would be mesocycles would be longer, slower, more drawn out. I really think on the influence of drugs, you have in heightened and elevated recovery abilities, and therefore training cycles do not need to be so short. Um, Mike is the kind of person that always likes to err on the side of safety and, and minimalism, uh, you know, minimum effective dose, that sort of thing. And I absolutely respect that, and you can see the progress he's made. It's amazing. He's doing well. Um, my experience, my personality, my, 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 uh, is just push harder, go faster, put your head down. Um, so th th we do differ, uh, but in general, uh, I can't say anything negative about his thoughts or ideas on it. Uh, they clearly work. They work for thousands, thousands of people. Um, that you know, I won't say anything negative. I will simply say that I personally, in my career, did things different, and the people that pay me for that information get a slightly different answer than Mike would provide. Uh, let's see. Logan Bell, let's see. 
Do you have any objective way to identify when you have increased dosage? Oh, you know what? That was part of the question, too. Um, concepts on when to elevate dosage. Um, the number, in my opinion, the number one influencer of necessity to elevate dosage is the one thing that most people don't take into account, and that is the accumulation of lean mass. You're talking about drugs that affect and influence, hey, your lean mass. So if you have accumulated 1, 2, 3, 5, 10, 27 kilograms of muscle, it's likely that those 1, 2, 3, 27 kilograms of muscle are going to require more drug over time. So the number one effector of necessity for elevated uh, dosage is body weight. Secondarily might be things like training volume, proximity to an event, etc, etc, etc. But the number one factor I would look at first is what did you need at this body weight? What body weight are you now? Then I would secondarily look at and what training volume, what calorie load, what, what, what. But the number one thing I would reflect upon is body mass. You know, if you required 1,000 milligrams at 100 kilos and you're now 120 kilos, I would assume right out of the box that, you know, you, you've got a 20% increase in body weight. You're probably going to need a 20% or greater increase in total dosage. And it's not as simple as that, but, I mean, that would be my first immediate leap, and then I would start filling in things from there. Again, super good way to behave is as I say so many times, and then, you know, I always make this sound like I'm like a pompous prick. Like, I know how to think and fuck everybody else. But what I do in terms of thinking is step back, look at the most fundamental thing, which in this case is body weight, put that at the top, and then just start filling in sub things from there and just make lists and start categorizing the lists. And you'll be surprised how quickly it'll come down to a very reasonably finite answer. Uh, that, that works with so many things. It's a tool I use in my personal life and professional life every day. Just just start with a big heading and start filling in lesser things under it. And it, it, the, the, these things take care of themselves when you do business that way. Anadrol for carbohydrate re reloading. Uh, would it be worth adding metformin and Cialis for this purpose? Um, not really sure what that question is. Carbohydrate reloading like proximal to a bodybuilding event, yes, you would definitely be using metformin and probably Cialis. Um, if that's just like kind of like post-workout, that kind of thing, no, I don't believe in changes that quick. I don't think you need to drive changes that quick. Um, even in a high-frequency workout environment, how often do you train that thing? I mean, every other day at the most. Um, so I'm not sure I understand the question exactly, but in general... For a bodybuilding event, you would probably be using metformin and Cialis, so the answer is yes, and in every other scenario, probably not. Um, for a water cut, uh, again, to, to what purpose? I mean, just to make weight, to win a bet with your buddies, to get on a powerlifting stage, for, for the, 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 the context would be everything. But in general, a super succinct answer would be, Metformin and Cialis would definitely help with sugar metabolism, nitric oxide pathways, which would improve retention and uptake of carbohydrates. So for what that's worth, yes. Um, okay, after a 24-hour powerlifting, probably in that context, probably the least, and the reason for that, the least effect is going to be garnered by that, and the reason for that is, um, again, biology big picture, low and slow, to really elicit the enzyme pathways and things necessary to generate actual improvements in the way your body's going to store carbohydrates, it's going to take time. So you're going to have to start days in advance, which isn't a problem. I mean, it's just a matter of a couple extra days of taking the drugs, possibly even a week. The problem is a lot of times doing that can influence the outcome you're trying to get. Taking drugs that are going to slowly improve your carbohydrate you know, retention and nitric oxide pathways might interfere with your ability to actually make weight. So it's a sort of thing where you're going to have to weigh out, you know, potential risk to being antithetical to your goal and then, you know, necessity for rebound recovery, super compensation on the back end. So I would weigh that out. But the, the answer is those drugs would definitely help that. 
uh, and are definitely used by lots of people for that purpose, but you do have to be careful how you juggle them because the sheer effect of the drug can interfere with the sheer goal you're trying to accomplish. Shay Sofe, so I'm probably French and I'm probably fucking that up and I apologize. Uh, thoughts on T3 and clombuterol for dropping fat. They work like a charm, used every day in bodybuilding, physique manipulation, like wanting to drop weight class for powerlifting. That adds an interesting twist. Um, obviously, drugs do what drugs do, and those drugs would definitely help you lose fat. Uh, the catch is powerlifters, and, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to insult you because I don't even know who you are, and I, I obviously couldn't even pronounce your name properly, so you know we're not best buddies, so I don't necessarily know what I'm talking about, but in a general sense, powerlifters typically have the least constraints on their diet of all the athletes in this pantheon and it is my experience that powerlifters can manipulate weight classes pretty easy by just not eating like an asshole for a fairly short period of time. Uh, they're typically very muscular, they're typically training very hard and just a minor reduction in calories and carbohydrates and their body weight moves. A lot of times powerlifters reach for drugs when they really should just put their hands in their pockets and not fucking eat like an asshole. So, again, I'm not insulting you and saying, oh, you eat like an asshole, fuck you. I'm saying that I would look, step back and look at things carefully before I implemented a drug. It could be as simple as, you know, tr trimming your, you know, PM carbohydrate intake and, you know, in the course of 10, 20 weeks, you do slide down a, a weight class. So, uh, drugs definitely work. I don't really have a big problem with drugs, but they're not always my first choice. Look at the big picture. Make sure that it's a drug you need and not just a little less fucking pie. So, I, you know, I, I'm serious. Um, you know, pie, I am, I'm always saying, but pie's delicious. It is. And, you know, if you got to have pie, then you might need a drug. But start, like I said, that list thing, top down. Start with the big picture and then work your way down. You might find that you need a lot less drugs to move things along than you think. Do I think it would be beneficial to periodize metformin usage for a non-PED using physique athlete. Um, sort of. I would again adjust everything, metformin being under the heading of everything, according to my bigger picture periodization. What is your training doing? What is your calorie load doing? You know, if your calories are a you know, two-thirds of what they used to be, you probably don't need all the metformin you used to, and so on and so on. So I would adjust it to training volume and calorie load Draw out a year in advance, you know, or some period of time in advance. I like years, you know, on a spreadsheet. And then, you know, where training and calories are high, that's going to be the highest dosage metformin. When calories and training are low, that's going to be the lowest dose or maybe even none. And, you know, when you're trying to get leaner, maybe more. When you're not so worried about being leaner, maybe less. And um, that's how I would adjust it. So it's definitely periodized, um, but it's more periodized in response to the bigger picture and necessity everything. Don't take a drug just because it's fucking funny. Take a drug because it's necessary, because it will synergize and elicit a specific response in response to what you're doing. That's the goal here. Um, you know, I love steroids, but I wouldn't fucking give them to somebody in a coma. It's just not appropriate. They're not going to get anything out of it. That kind of thing. Like, you, you right tool for the right job. So, identify the job, then you can start to pick the tools. So, what's my stance on DNP for fat loss? Works like a fucking charm. Uh, without a doubt, the most effective, powerful fat loss compound on planet Earth. It is dangerous, but so is fucking everything. DMP is powerful. Works like a charm. Uh, I have used it. My wife has used it. Uh, I wouldn't say I recommend it because I don't try to recommend any drug use, but it really works. Uh, just off the cuff, what I can tell you is probably a much lower dosage than you, you know, kind of have been brought up to. You know, people rattle off, you know, you need 500 milligrams or whatever. Um, fucking 50, 100 milligrams a day, it will work. You will notice it. You will lose fat at a faster rate. Uh, for me, the sweet spot is 200 milligrams. I'm 105 kilograms away, like 230, 235. Um, 200 milligrams works like a charm. More than that, I'm uncomfortable and I find it a little difficult to function. I could not fathom taking 500 milligrams on a regular basis. I have done it for a couple of days. It's fucking horrible. Uh, but in general, it really works. Uh, it's really effective. Uh, it's really illegal. So, you know, use that bit of information for what it's worth. But uh, yeah, it definitely works. Um, what I wouldn't do is try to combine it with any other fat loss components. 
don't take clenbuterol, don't take T3, those sorts of things, simply because, one, they'll just be sheer fucking overwhelmed by the effect of the DMP. And secondly, um, DMP itself just elicits such radical changes in body temperature, hydration, etc. You don't need compounding of factors there. Um, so there you are. <coughs> yeah, 100 milligrams of DMP has about a 10% impact on BMR. That's roughly where I would... Uh, would stand is about every 100 milligrams is about a 10% influence on basal metabolic rate. Uh, that's kind of the, the armchair, you know, off the cuff rule I use. So yeah, like I said, 200 milligrams is a pretty big impact. I mean, that's, you know, it's a pretty big deal. And uh, it, it results in that. I can drop, Christ, I can drop a pound, I can drop 500 grams of body fat about every three days. At two, with almost no dietary changes with 200 milligrams of DNP. And I typically uh, do it in two-week blocks. I'll do two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, and then that's usually about it. Um, so just just for what that's worth. Of course, I also, you know, always float around, you know, 10 12% body fat, so I'm never, you know, in need of moving particularly far. One, I don't prepare for physique events, so I don't have to go down to, you know, 5% or any bullshit like that. And, you know, so it's, it's usually a nominal adjustment. But uh, it's not making it about me. I'm just doing what I do, or you know how I would do it, and where my experience lies. I used DMP in my bodybuilding career in the uh, late '80s, early '90s to drive myself down to you know no percent body fat, uh, and it's a, just a horrible affair. It's just not fun, but it definitely works, and it definitely does that. So uh, let's see. We are coming up on the hour mark, so maybe uh, anybody out there wants to. Fire in any uh, exciting questions to fill in the last little bit. Uh, let's see. Theodore Basher thanks says thank you. That's what I thought logically, uh, and you know, and that's the beauty of it is, um, you know, it's, if you stop and clear your mind and think logically, most of the shit does come to you. Uh, you don't really need an expert. I think the big value that I offer to a lot of people, and actually, many of my clients have even said the big value I offer is just. Stripping away the bullshit and stating what they kind of suspected, uh, you know, in the, in the back of their head, I state it kind of matter-of-factly and straightforward, and I'm happy to fill that niche if that's, you know, all the value I have, and it's better than none, so I am completely comfortable with that, but yeah, just think clearly, clear your mind, it's usually not nearly as difficult as you think it is. Let's see, since nothing's coming in... Should metformin be timed around carb intake or just take it in the morning? Um, I did a video on specific metformin use for Tony Huge over at Enhanced Athlete. Um, their videos have been migrated from YouTube off to their own site, but I believe that video is still there. I suggest you go look at that, uh, but really quickly, um, again, metformin is prescribed to clinical diabetics. It, and that is its fundamental purpose and function. And so you can reflect on that for how to use it in a general sense. And the answer to that is um, it's a relatively long-acting compound. The timing is a lot less relevant specifically, uh, especially in somebody that doesn't, quote, need it for, you know, sustaining life like an actual clinical diabetic. Um, however, I would target an either AM or PM dosing, depending on your specific purpose. If your goal is just to improve your overall sugar metabolism and, uh, you know, uh, improve your utilization of substrates in a hypercaloric environment, take it first thing in the morning, go about your day whistling. If you are in a scenario where preserving your carbohydrate sensitivity or insulin sensitivity because of some other action, use of growth hormone, it was something. I might suggest you take it at night. Its action will be much more pronounced on the cellular level because you're not simultaneously being, those cells are not simultaneously being bombarded by glucose, i.e. insulin, so you would wake up with a much higher pre-prepared insulin sensitivity. So the purpose would probably affect the dose timing, but in general, once a day, unless you're taking a big dose, you might want to take 500 a.m. to p.m. You know, if you're a very big person or super caloric or something like that. But in general, um, go back and reflect on that other video because I go into it in a lot more detail. But in a general sense, I would once a day, first thing or last thing, depending on goal, what I'm hearing from you, probably just first thing and go about your day. 
Let's see, a couple more things. Uh, let's see, a name that I literally cannot pronounce. It looks maybe Greek or Russian. I apologize for that. I'm not even sure my computer's presenting the topography correctly because it just looks like craziness. Um, thanks for all your content. Well, thank you for paying attention. Thank you. Uh, I am running 50 milligrams of Winstrel every day and 400 milligrams of test per week. That's not an inappropriate arrangement. Um, I think probably that test number is even a little bold, but I, I'm okay with it. I don't know what you weigh. So uh, how long should I run the Winstrel? That is not a question I would dare answer in any scenario. What I would tell you is the risk-reward ratio kind of thing. And, you know, is there something after that? Is it going to transition into another drug, or is it just that and then you're done with that? Um, but reflect back on this conversation a couple half an hour ago or so, I am not a big fan of short cycles. I don't think you elicit really big changes within physiology in a short period of time. Um, Winstrel is an oral compound, or at least I'm assuming it is. There is an injectable Winstrel, but it doesn't say that, so I'm assuming that it's uh, oral. Therefore, you have a little bit greater liver burden. Um, I typically minimize oral use across the board for that very reason, save them for contest time, but in a general sense, if I was, you know, suggesting or, you know, consulting on an off-season oral dominant cycle, uh, I would probably say up to 12 weeks. Uh, beyond 12 weeks, you're probably risk to reward benefit dips a little bit. Uh, I would say six is the absolute minimum. Eight to 10 is probably good. Um, that, that's a kind of a very generic but general sense. Uh, I think in the off-season, there's really no reason to take orals more than 12 weeks. Whatever benefit you were getting, you would have gotten, and you could transition to uh, you know, longer-acting IM type stuff. But in a general sense, I would say six weeks is your absolute minimum. I think it's going to take, like I said, I really believe it takes about four weeks to really start getting the full pronounced effects of the compound you're taking. So that's where I would... Uh, that's where I would go with that. Oh, this next one actually caught my eye. What can I do to improve HDL-LDL ratio while using orals? Um, that is actually a fantastic question. Of course, there's a pantheon of drugs uh, you can take to do that. Uh, I don't recommend you run to that as an option, but it is an option. Um, simple Exercise, adding cardio, adding you know cardiovascular exercise and improving your overall fitness is wildly underrated by strength athletes. Um, really, seriously, 20-minute walk probably has as much impact on your LDL-HDL ratio and overall fitness and health than fucking almost any drug you can reach for. Really, seriously. Uh, secondarily, um, over-the-counter, slow niacin. Buy it anywhere, Walmart, Amazon.com. Uh, 250 to 500 milligrams of slow niacin. Slow, specifically, it's time-released. It dribbles out, of course, almost the course of 24 hours. Uh, will not work wonders, but it will adjust specifically your LDL-HDL ratio a bit, 10 or 20%, which a lot of times, protracted over years, is a really big mover of health. Uh, I've said this over and over, and I will say it again to put this into context and perspective. Slow niacin, ZMA, and chromium picolinate are essentially the only supplements that I personally spend my money on on a regular basis. I take 250 milligrams of slow niacin, AM and PM. Uh, I have done so for years. Uh, I believe in it, and like I said, I personally spend my money on it. So that's how I would, uh, you know, that's how I would address that. But in general, cholesterol, I think, and overall, big picture, total cholesterol value is wildly overstated. And secondarily, your LDL-HDL ratio, a low-fat diet, and a measure of actual fucking physical fitness, uh, and most people really just don't have a problem. It, it, I, know, I know that sounds childish, but uh, I really sincerely believe that minimum dosage of growth hormone necessary to induce hyperplasia that is a fucking fantastic question uh the reason for that is is i sincerely suspect that it is not the dosage that is the influencer on that but rather the behavior uh, obviously 
Subotropic hormone and specific growth factors are absolutely relevant in generating hyperplasia, but in the few, and I do fucking mean few, studies that have found hyperplasia to actually have occurred, it's not really in a super physiologic hormonal state, it's in uh, absurd behavioral states. Ridiculously high intensity exercise, ridiculously high volume exercise, states of extraordinary physical stress. I suspect that growth hormone is a player in that, but probably not the player in that. The place they find that in is these you know, ridiculous, uh, absurd, high-speed cyclists, speed skaters, uh, different things where there's just wicked, wicked stresses over very short periods of time. Hippodrome cyclists and shit like that where they go from zero to fucking 60 miles an hour you know, in, in like two turns of the track. Uh, it's these extraordinary high-stress environments that are creating such specific and unusual conditions that it's generating or seemingly generating the hyperplasia. Uh, now, granted, I'm sure that some measure of hormonal influence is necessary to elicit the change, but the stimulus for it seems not to be the growth hormone, but rather the behavior. So I think that's a great question, but it's probably illuminating the fact that it's a much bigger picture than you know, you're focusing on. <laughs> Tony is asking, uh, how much effect does sleep uh, loss have on body fat storage. Uh, I, I can answer from a physiology, you know, uh, academic point of view, but uh, my personal experience is I don't sleep where the fuck haven't since I'm a toddler. So um, personally, I can give you zero input, but um, the sleep cycle and the, the hormonal changes associated with sleep are very positive overall to almost every physiological activity and sleep is very, very important. Um, even to the point where there's now some studies where they've been actually been inducing sleep specifically, you know, a drug induced sleep and measuring hormonal changes in response to exercise and what have you. And they're finding that even drug driven sleep is better than no sleep. So the answer is it's hugely important. Um, personally, I'd love to get on that boat because I don't get any and uh, I can't imagine what that's like. I see my wife you know, laying in bed every night. And she looks so peaceful and quiet and um, I'd love to get a little bit of that action, but it doesn't happen for me, so I don't know what to say. Do I think the liver toxicity of methtrianolone is overblown? No. I think most people just simply use much too big a dosages. If you look at the anabolic to androgenic index, you know, it's hundreds of times more potent than testosterone, so why are you taking comparable dosage? You know, if a thousand milligrams of testosterone makes you grow for like a weed, you know, 50 milligrams of methtrianolone probably will too. Uh, I think, you know, obviously on a milligram to milligram basis, every study has shown that it's much more toxic, but since you need so much less of it to actually elicit the same results, um, I don't know that it's overblown. I think it's just inappropriately applied. Uh, much like mint or some of these other drugs, is the whole idea is they're much more potent, so you need much less. And you know that, that you know that's that's the whole gig there. Uh, just like DHB, dihydroboldenone is probably the most powerful steroid available. Um, you know, literally, you know, guys that are presently taking two thousand milligrams can get away with one hundred fifty, two hundred milligrams of DHB. Um, if they tried to take the same 2,000 milligrams, they'd have liver tumors in a fucking month. Um, it's just a matter of applying their shit appropriately. So, yeah, I do, in a sense, think it's overblown, but largely because bro science idiots can't, you know, work dosage charts. So, yeah. Let's see. We have crossed the hour mark. Uh, by the way, I didn't mention this, and I usually do. There's been a very good uh, viewership uh, means these things are taking getting a little traction, and for that, um, I will take this moment to thank everyone. I really do appreciate all of you tuning in and uh, actually taking the time out of your day to spend time with me. Um, really, uh, really, uh, really put 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 back by that. I'm amazed. Um, custom to just talking to myself and ranting to myself. The fact that any or all of you would take the time out of your day or week or month to Tune in and, and, and join me is, is, is really humbling, and I do appreciate it. A couple more seconds, see if anything exciting shoots through. i got to thank you and thank you. Uh, really should be the other way around. It should be me repeatedly thanking all of you for uh, tuning in and, and making this whole thing go. 
So with that, I will leave you a quick remark. I do have a number of other questions that came in over the course of the month. Uh, I will shelve them and either include them in next question and answer or perhaps respond to the people independently or perhaps both. So don't think I'm ignoring you if I didn't answer your question specifically because that is not the case. Maria, I will talk to you uh, independently. Uh, Mr. Medic, I will speak to you very directly about 24 hours from now or something. So, and that's about it, folks, ladies and gentlemen. And I also want to thank you. I'm sure most of you are not, based on the time of day, most of you are not in Australia and therefore not going to be attending my upcoming appearances in Australia. But I have to say that each and every one of you tuning into this and doing the whole social media thing and making the fuss and moving this forward like you have is a large reason why I've been invited to Australia and can be part of that. So yet again for that, I would like to thank each and every one of you. Uh, you guys make this whole thing go. Um, I'm crazy and I would just be bucket-docking myself whether you were there or not. So thank you. And with that, I will see you on the first of the coming month. And uh, keep the questions coming in. Keep the Facebook and uh, social media shit moving along. And uh, I will try to roll this over into an audio format, post it on the podcast site, and then also this will appear on Facebook and YouTube for review at any time. All right. Thanks a lot, everyone. Until next month, stay strong. Thank you for listening to Sports Performance Radio.